Good morning. It's uh, Good Shepherd Sunday, fourth Sunday of Easter. And uh, in case you don't think we need this reminder, can you play that, Jeffrey? Oh, that is painfully funny. How we need a shepherd. Let's pray. Holy Father, open our hearts and minds to what you want us to hear today. Give me words that are true, helpful, and pleasing to you. In the name of our beautifully good shepherd, Jesus Christ, amen. We're going to be looking at John 10, Acts 6 and 7, and 1 Peter 2 today, so hold on, it may be a bumpy ride. But let's begin with John 10. But and to understand the context for Jesus' words... We must go back a chapter where we encounter a man born blind. Imagine with me this man, blind since birth, who was a beggar, who sat in perpetual darkness. One day, he heard a group of people walking by, and someone in the group asked this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This man may have thought, oh, here we go again. Shame and despair doled out each time. He didn't even want to hear the answer. But when this rabbi spoke, his voice was different. And and what he said was different. It was something no one had ever said about him. This man isn't blind because he or his parents sinned, but so that God's glory might be revealed in him. What? God's glory revealed in me, he might have thought. There was something quickening in him, in this man, that had long been dead. Who is this voice? Unlike one he had ever heard in manner, in tone, and in message. Suddenly he sensed this man drawing near. He touched his eyes with something like wet dirt. And then he spoke directly to him to go and wash. There's no mention of conversation here between them. He simply obeyed and went and washed. And scripture says he came back to the place where Jesus had found him completely different than when he left there not long before. He could see. The light had come. Can you picture him? Dancing, shouting, touching his eyes, looking with wonder at the world he could now see. Imagine him running to his parents and looking at them for the first time. Tears of joy and laughter and amazement. He had a new life. Yet he didn't even know who healed him. He hadn't seen him, and before he could go and find him, the neighbors, who couldn't decide if it was really him or not, despite him telling them, yes, it's me, took him to the religious leaders. And the whiplash started. There was no joy in their circle. They didn't rejoice with him. They weren't glad for him. Their voices were angry. They were suspicious, questioning, and unbelieving. He answered as best he could multiple times, but it wasn't sufficient for them. 
This couldn't be a prophet. It's not the Messiah. After all, it's the Sabbath, they said. Seemed clear to the man. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Trying to steal his joy, kill the encounter, and destroy his witness, they answered him, You were born entirely in sins. Are you trying to teach us? And they cast him out. But what does the good shepherd do? He comes and finds him. Hearing that he had been mistreated, Jesus comes. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, the healed man said, who is he, sir? Tell me that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. And the man responded, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So then Jesus begins what we now know as chapter 10, contrasting himself as the true shepherd against the false. He enters the door legitimately. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls them by name. He leads them out. He goes before them, and they indeed do know his voice. He's also the door. Through him alone will his sheep be saved. They'll go in and out and find pasture through him alone. He has come that his sheep will have life and have it abundantly. Clearly, this man is a picture of that reality. But Jesus goes further. He is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. What a contrast between those who would steal and kill and destroy sheep and the one good and true shepherd who not only comes, calls, leads, protects, cares, goes before, he also dies for the sheep. You know, good only begins to describe him. N.T. Wright notes that our word good doesn't quite catch the full meaning of the word used in the gospel. It's not deep enough. It's not wide enough. It's not long enough. It's not high enough to describe the love of this shepherd. The word John uses can also mean beautiful, describing the sheer attractiveness of what the shepherd does for his sheep. When he calls, people want to come. When they realize he has died for them, they want to even more. The point of calling Jesus the Good Shepherd is to emphasize the strange and compelling power of his beautifully good love. Jesus loves us. He loves the sheep. And his divine way stands in sharp contrast to the ways of mere humans. We like the story of the blind man. We either are him or were him sitting in darkness until Jesus opened our eyes and led us out to green pastures, quiet waters with him. It's a favored picture of our relationship with Jesus, our shepherd. He restoring our soul, leading us in right paths. It's beautifully good. But there's another man in our text today, following the good shepherd, that we must consider. In our Acts passage, We meet Stephen, who had heard the beautifully good shepherd call his name and was following the voice of Jesus. He was a man, Scripture says, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. 
and one of the first ordained deacons by the apostles. He served the church as a faithful under-shepherd, and many signs and miracles occurred in his ministry. Not all church leaders are thieves and robbers. The apostles, who are also noted here, wanted to be faithful to God and the sheep by giving their attention to prayer and to the preaching of the word. Also good, not perfect, but good religious leaders. Jesus has his own, and I think they outnumber the false. The hand of God, though, was upon Stephen. And like the man born blind, he was taken to the religious authorities for questioning, and he soon found himself following the good, beautiful shepherd into the valley of the shadow of death, which, for all Christ followers, the valley of the shadow of death is inevitable. We will go through valleys multiple times. There are many kinds of valleys. Today's passages seem to focus on the valleys created in our lives by the false shepherds by mistreatment. Our good shepherd has already said that there are thieves and robbers, false shepherds. They will be among us until his final return and the full manifestation of his victory on earth is as it is in heaven. Stephen's valley of the shadow of death was at the hands of false shepherds and his true and good shepherd allowed it. Whatever valley we find ourselves in, We are not alone. The beautifully good shepherd is with us, has already traversed its dangerous path, and has come through victorious. So whatever the valley, that isn't the real issue. How we respond to it, how we decide to go through it, is the key. In our first Peter passage, we're given guidance to help us in the valley like the one Stephen found himself in. In fact, Stephen exemplifies what the Apostle Peter is teaching us in 1 Peter 2. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. That's the church. Love the church. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He goes on. If when, you do go- if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The commentator Stephen Motyer wrote, Jesus is our example not just in the way he suffered, but in his obedient submission to the powers of the world. The Christian calling is patient submission to suffering within the structures of the world. N.T. Wright explains it this way, It is part of God's will that his created earth, 
should be ruled and governed by human authorities. Order is better than chaos, even though order can turn into tyranny and frequently does. And though our hatred of tyranny might lead us into the normal kind of revolutionary politics, which hasn't changed much from the first century to our own day, Peter advocates a different way. Be subject to the ruling authorities, but make sure at the same time that by your good behavior, you shame those who, out of folly and ignorance, want to criticize you. That is how God is establishing his presence and his rule on earth as in heaven. Jesus understood this. He submitted himself to earthly power because he trusted more in heavenly power, in God, who is supreme. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says, The New Testament writer's concern was the relationship of individuals to God, not on, was the relationship of individuals to God and on the godly response of believers in mistreatment. Peter continues, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The key to it all is that the crucifixion of the Messiah was the most unjust and wicked act the world has ever seen or will ever see. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We were going astray like lost sheep, but the wound which he suffered gave us healing. So he's urging them in this letter from Peter, to realize that somehow, strangely, the sufferings of the Messiah are not only the means by which we ourselves are rescued from our own sin. They are the means when extended through the life of his people, through us, by which the world itself may be brought to a new place. Beloved, there is always something bigger going on in the midst of our suffering and our mistreatment. So back to Stephen. He's a picture of what Peter is teaching us, submitting to authorities, and even in mistreatment, desiring that the message of Christ not be maligned, being patient in suffering as a means of grace to draw others, even those picking up the stones, to Christ. He epitomizes the call to follow the shepherd even in the valley, to live as he lived, suffered, suffer as he suffered, ever mindful of God and his mission to save. Stephen was determined to use the attempts by the thieves and the robbers who were trying to steal and kill and destroy as one last opportunity to appeal to them, to accept the Messiah God had sent them. And what did our good, beautiful shepherd do? Like he found the man born blind while still in his physical body, he came to Stephen through the Holy Spirit in a vision. Truly, he has set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Truly, he will anoint our heads with oil. Truly, our cup does overflow, even in the midst of our suffering. 
Stephen saw the glory of the heavenly throne room and Jesus standing at God's right hand. What tremendous kindness of Jesus. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, in the midst of religious persecution, saw the living, risen Lord in his glory standing, I believe, looking at Stephen with such love, such joy, strengthening him, empowering him to witness, even in his extreme suffering and pending death, and then welcoming him home. Now that's beautifully good to me. That's our shepherd. Howard Marshall wrote, Stephen died as only one who was full of the Holy Spirit could. He seems to have consciously followed the pattern of his master as he faced his own death. Paraphrasing John Chrysostom, Stephen's prayer for his enemies at the point of his death was his attempt to show them, those trying to kill him, that he is not perishing and to teach them to clear himself of unforgiveness against them, wishing also, even in this way, to win them over. For to show that he forgave their wrath and rage in murdering him, and that his own soul was free from sin, was the way to make his saying to be favorably received. Stephen lived and died, 1 Peter text today picture of following the shepherd in this way is sadly less favored. The good shepherd calls us first to his salvation, like he did to the man born blind. And then to live out that salvation by exhibiting good, godly lives in a non-Christian world opposed to us, like he did through Stephen. Grant Osborne wrote in his commentary, Christ has established the pattern of suffering for God, and it is our privilege to walk where he walked and how he walked. And so I ask, where are you today? Are you the man born blind without the light of the world? Are you sitting in darkness still? If you're awakened in any way today to recognize your desperate need for a Savior and you want to hear his voice, there's grace here for you today. He draws near. Listen for his voice calling your name. Come to the table and receive him crucified for you. He wants to save you. Say to him, Lord, I believe and worship him. For those here who have already decided to follow the Good Shepherd and know him, where are you? What's been your response in the suffering he's allowed in your life? How have you responded to personal injustice? How have you you handled mistreatment in the church or out? I've been in ministry conservatively for over 30 years, and I have lost count of the times I've listened to someone hurt by the church. It's a temporary reality, but it is a reality right now. Jesus acknowledges it. There are those who come in as thieves and robbers, and we're all human, and we all fail. I'm always deeply saddened when I hear that someone's been hurt. And if you're one of these, as a church leader, I want to sincerely apologize to you. I am sorry. Please forgive us. 
Just as sad as I am to hear of mistreatment, I have also been saddened greatly by many Christians who have been hurt, who justify their unchristlike responses and attitudes, and take and hold positions Christ does not commend, forfeiting any witness of Christ in their situation. And they grow more deformed than transformed. I've been guilty of this. I've been hurt by the church, and I've been guilty of not responding right. We seem to be lacking, beloved, in our understanding of the opportunities suffering offers as a witness for Christ in the midst of it, or the transformative power it can be to our souls if we respond to it as Jesus invites us to, patiently enduring, humbly accepting, and trusting our souls to the one who is our true shepherd and overseer and judges justly. Francois de Fenelon was a French archbishop in the Roman Catholic Church in the late 16, early 1700s, whose writings I've been chewing and choking on for about a year now. I can't seem to get past the first few pages of this book of his writings. And I offer this gently, mostly for myself. He writes, Often when you suffer, it is the life of your self-nature that causes you, you pain. Do not resist what God brings into your life. Be willing to suffer if that is what is needed. God prepares a cross for you that you must embrace without thought of self-preservation. If you push the cross away, your circumstances will become twice as hard to bear. In the long run, the pain of resisting the cross is harder to live with than the cross itself. Nothing so softens and soothes your pain as the spirit of non-resistance to your Lord. Do not reject the full work that the power of the cross could accomplish in you. Learn to suffer in humility and in peace. Your deep self-love makes the cross too heavy to bear. Learn to suffer with simplicity and a heart full of love. You exaggerate the sacrifices and ignore the blessings. I've been convicted through these passages that I want to follow the shepherd when he leads me to green pastures more than when he leads me through valleys of mistreatment, of the shadow of death. Often my heart has stood in opposition to Christ, my good shepherd, by not humbly and patiently enduring mistreatment as he did. I've lacked desire in those situations to consciously follow the pattern of my master and have not stayed mindful of God. Often, I've misinterpreted my pain as suffering caused by another when my own self-love has been the source. Some here may feel the same. Beloved, let's repent. Let's come fully back to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls that we might be changed by the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to empower us like he did Stephen 
to testify of Christ in the midst of our suffering. Our beautifully good shepherd calls today. If you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Amen and amen.